That's new music. I just want to hear the rest of the music. It's too short. I like that little jingle. Well, good morning and welcome. It's good to see you this morning. We are in week number six of uh, a series that I have called, wait for it, what did I call it? How to Stay Sane in a Polarized Society. And this morning, we're talking about the intersection of faith and truth, truth. When we moved to Iowa, we had been homeschooling our kids. We have four kids, a girl and then three boys. And the girl was in 10th grade, the boy was in 8th grade, the other boy was in 5th grade, and the little one wasn't, he was maybe in kindergarten when we moved. When we moved to Iowa from western New York, there were schools that were actually an option. In fact, in Orange City, the schools we found had four out of five of teachers that we'd run into were faithful, God-fearing believers. And we thought, wow, why would we keep our kids home when they can have the best of both worlds? They can have Christian education by Christians living in the real world and living out their faith. So anyway, we sent our kids to school at the what we always thought in Western New York as the evil public school system, right? And uh, we, but we kept the little one at home because my wife wanted to teach him how to read. So we kept him home for another year yet. And then we put Mitchell, little tiny Mitchell, we put him into uh, kindergarten and, or into first grade. And I was watching him because I was waiting for his for his uh, holy little optimistic heart to get turned, for him to get in with the wrong crowd, start having, a, start having a bad attitude, and just start having some behavioral issues and attitude things. So I was, I was watching because as parents, we put our kids into a different culture outside of our home, and we watch them because we don't want them to adapt to the negative elements of a culture that is not our own, uh, the worst elements of maybe even a good culture, we don't want them to get around the wrong kids and get the wrong kind of thinking and the wrong mindset. And so I watched Mitch, and Mitch, somehow, he never changed all the way through, but that's just Mitch. Mitch is like the nicest person I know. And, you know, you hear people say that, but it's really true with Mitch. I tell my other three kids, Mitch is the nicest of my four kids because he just is. He's just got like this, this heart of gold. Um, God has put us into the public square. We're put as believers into our culture. And I would imagine if he's a good father, which he is, a much infinitely better father than any of us guys, that he has, he's jealous for our hearts, right? He doesn't want our heart to be let off into the negative elements of our culture. And as a, as a ministry practitioner who listens to other ministry practitioners, the conversation these days is how is the church acclimating to the culture? How are believers just kind of without even realizing it, kind of synthesizing into the culture around them 
and they think that they're following Jesus, and then it's like the little kid who looks up and sees the hand that they, oh, that's not my dad, you know, I'm the wrong, I grabbed the hand of the wrong person. And that can happen to us sometimes. And I see it here in this passage that we're in in John chapter 15, the last two verses of John 15. If you have your hand out from the tables out there, it, it's, the, the text is on here. And then the first 15 verses of John chapter 16. And he says in verse 26 of John 15, when the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. Now, we're in, so John 15 is the center section of John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. We went from 13 to 17, right? To, and now we're on either side of the bullseye. Now we're on the back side of the bullseye, which is John 15, which we'll get into the next time uh, I speak. But we're on the far side of it right now, right at the end of John 15 and into John 16. And on either side of John 15, there's this teaching about the advocate, the paraclete, the comforter, the counselor, the helper, the Holy Spirit. Because the disciples were in a funk, and they were very nervous about Jesus leaving. Jesus said, I'm only with you for a short time and then I'm out of here. I'm gone. They were anxious. It, and it wasn't like they, they weren't mad. They were fearful that Jesus was leaving. Kind of like when you've got somebody who's training you and they're, they're with you and then the first day that they're gone and you're on your own, you're a little anxious because you don't have that person to grab. I remember when my son started working at Wells Fargo, my, my middle son, and he was doing mortgages and he had all this stuff and he had to, you know, dot all his I's and cross all his T's, and, and, but he had somebody right next to him in the, in the cubicle right next to him. And he could call this guy and he, could, he would come over and he would help him. And then I remember when that guy wasn't there. And Doug had to do it all on his own and the, the anxiety that comes with that. And some of you, you've been there, right? You've been there at your jobs or in your neighborhood or whatever role that you've been playing. You've had somebody there and then they're going to be gone. They were anxious. And now he's speaking to them. He's talking to them about an advocate. And he calls him the spirit of what? Truth. And what's his name said to Jesus? What is truth? And everybody in our culture today is saying the same thing. What is truth? Well, that's your truth. As though there could be two different truths. Oh, that's your truth. There are different perceptions and different perspectives and different opinions but if truth comes from God, and God is truth, then there's really only one truth. And a lot of maybe different ways to perceive it, but let's not fool ourselves into thinking that I can have my truth and you can have yours. No, I can have my perspective and you can have yours. 
One of you can have one opinion and one of you can have another. But God is going to ultimately, this is, this is the truth. There's not a bunch of different truths. You know, I read a lot of books that I, I'm reading and I think, oh man, I wish I could give this to our people to read. And then before I know it, I, I'm on to the next one. I've been in this degree program. And so I've got to read these books. But this book, Disappearing Church by Mark Sayers, was one that I, that I marked up and I thought, man, we gotta, we've got to read this at church. Oh, I'm going to give this to the elders. It hasn't happened yet. It just hasn't happened. But I was reading an article this past week. I thought, man, I, I like this article. This, this says what I think we're all experiencing. And then I looked down and I realized it was a guest post on somebody else's blog, but it was a guest post by Mark Sayers saying the same thing. So I want to I share just a little bit of it with you in the context of the spirit of truth in a culture of relativism, right? In a culture of my truth, your truth, anybody's truth. He says this, he says, post-Christian culture, we're in a post-Christian culture, attempts to retain the solace of faith, the, the, the binky of faith, right? The pat on the back, the rock of my baby of faith. I, I, I want to feel good. I want the, the solace, the comfort, the blankie of faith. While gutting it of the costs, commitments, and restraints that the gospel places upon the individual will. And that's something that Christians don't even like to think about today, let alone the world, that the true gospel actually places costs on us, demands commitments from us, and actually curtails our individual will. He says post-Christianity intuitively yearns for the justice and shalom of the kingdom. That's in the heart of people. They want that. Well, post-Christianity also defends the reign of the individual will. That's where it overlaps with the culture, the reign, the supremacy of the individual will. Post-Christianity is Christianity emptied of its content, as this one theologian writes. He writes, forms of aesthetic humanism often preserved a number of values that were Christian in origin, but having cut off these values from their source, they were powerless to maintain them in their full strength or even in their authentic integrity. You went up to the garden this, this afternoon after church and you began just cutting off plants and just letting them drop where they are. Well, number one, Lyndon would cry and a bunch of you who have been working out there would be in tears. But what, what, what will happen if you cut off the plant and just let it drop? In a day of the weather we've been having, it's going to shrivel up. First it's going to go limp. It's going to be nothing. And it's going to shrivel up. It's going to die. And that's what's happened. We still have a culture. We live in this culture that, that has values out front, but they're Dutch fronts. There's nothing behind them. Why? Because they've been severed from the previous chapter, chapter 15 of John, as it were, the vine. They've been cut off. They, they can't exist because the very definition of these values 
only are realized when they're connected to the source. So he says, spirit, reason, liberty, truth, brotherhood, justice, these great things without which there is no true humanity, they quickly become unreal when no longer seen as radiating from God, when faith in the living God no longer provides their vital substance. They become unreal. They're, they're cardboard stand-up cutouts where you stand next to it like this, and from the front you're really, you can hardly tell. It looks like the person, but you look from the side and they're only like that big. They're not real. He says they become empty forms. Some French theologian. Good words. He goes on to write, yet despite such warnings, post-Christianity grows. New York Times columnist David Brooks senses this post-Christian individualistic theology in the wisdom and advice given to university students. They are sent off into this world with the theology ringing in their ears that if you sample, and if you sample some of the commencement addresses being broadcast on C-SPAN these days, you see that many graduates are told the following. Follow your passion. Chart your own course. March to the beat of your own drummer. Follow your dreams. Find yourself. This is the litany of expressive individualism. Sadly, such advice can be found not only in the secular college commencement speech, but also in many churches. Albeit with the saccharine sheen of a Christianized veneer. Wow, that's descriptive, isn't it? This artificial sweetener shine of this Dutch front, this Christianized veneer. So in churches, if I'm preaching to you, chart your own course and march to the beat of your own drum, follow your dreams and find yourself, that's expressing individualism, individualistic expression, self-identification. Hang on, God. You just hang on. Stand by. I don't need you right now. I'll get to you later. I need to define myself. I need to express myself. And by the way, you all need to like it. You all need to accept me. You can't speak bad about me. And on and on it goes. He says, to get to the heart of our post-Christian context, we must understand how we got here, how the ground shifted. Sometime in the night, a revolution occurred, and we did not notice it. So distracted by the phony war between left and right and conservatives and liberals, we have failed to notice that a new power had seized control of both our imaginations and the halls of power. This new power swirls around a small yet widely held set of beliefs. And he lists seven things. And the first one is the one that I've been talking about for years, how in our society, the highest value is freedom. Freedom and liberty. You know, you can see the flag blowing in the wind as we sing and talk about freedom and liberty. 
And it's wonderful and it's beautiful. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. It is a biblical virtue to find when connected to the biblical root. But when severed, it becomes ugly and individualistic and selfish and self-centered. So these seven things, he says, the highest good is individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, and self-expression. This is how I'm expressing myself. This is who I see myself as. Now, the, the challenge, there's always a little bit of truth and error mixed in all this stuff. The challenge is that as believers, we're to love and respect and care for people. So when somebody over here in a crazy unbiblical way, decides to express themselves and define themselves as, as the old commercial goes, some of you older people to remember, oh, oh, you know, how, how I think I am. I'm just, I'm just, oh, I'm just beside myself. I'm so wonderful. I'm so fantastic. When somebody decides to define themselves in an unbiblical way, we can't on this side you know, start taking pot shots at him and slinging mud and throwing darts and hurling invectives. Somehow we who have the Holy Spirit and the love of Christ need to find it in our hearts to come alongside those in our culture who are clearly off track and off course. But the problem is in the public square, sometimes we get caustic and de denigrate. We denigrate them. We're demeaning and insulting. And they hear all that. And they look at the church and they see judgmentalism. Um, so, so that's a real thing that Jesus, Jesus even said, I did not come to judge. I came to seek and save the lost. There is a judge. There's going to be a great white throne someday. We're all going to be judged. But Jesus said, when I came, I did not come to judge. I came to seek and save the lost. And then he told us, don't judge or you'll be judged. So it's not our role to judge, but it is our role to discern and to take our marching orders as believers from the judge. So understanding how we are to treat people in the world I'm going to define this over here, not to be demeaning or denigrating, but to give us warning that we don't come over here with them. Because again, remember the, the, a couple Sundays ago I talked about when we leave the kingdom of God and we come down to the kingdom of this world, there's nobody up here keeping the trains on the track. There's nobody up here putting the newspaper out with the good news. Because we've all come down here and we've joined them in their party. So we don't want to get over here, but, but it's what's happened. It's what's happened because the highest good in society is this individual freedom. And we've got to remember the highest good is the glory of God, is true holiness, true righteousness. That's the, the highest good is God and his glory. That's the highest good. And we submit ourselves to that. We submit ourselves to his truth. We submit ourselves to his spirit. We submit ourselves to the Lord and Savior, Jesus. There's truth and we're not it. There's truth and we don't have the corner on the market of truth. We don't. As believers, as the body of Christ, wherein the Spirit dwells and we become this holy 
dwelling that the Lord lives in by His Spirit, ironically, we do have a corner on the market of truth. We have it. It's when we walk away from it, when we join our culture over here, that is sad because we had the truth and we're walking away from it. But the highest good, there's seven things here. The highest good is individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, self-expression. Number two, traditions and religions perceived or received wisdom, regulations, social ties, any of these things that restrict individual freedom and happiness and self-expression and self-definition, they must be reshaped, deconstructed, or, or destroyed. That's what the culture is telling us. If, if anything restricts freedom, that's got to be deconstructed. That's got to be taken away. Another thing, set of beliefs that the culture holds. Number three, the world will inevitably improve as the scope of individual freedom grows. As we spread freedom, the world will improve. Technology, in particular the internet, will, mo- will motor uh, this progression toward utopia. It's not going to happen. Jesus will, will bring the kingdom. It's not utopia. It's the kingdom, right? Jesus brings that. The world will not inevitably improve as the scope of individual freedom grows. That's not true. We're free. Look at how great our society is. Look at how faithful our society is, even to each other, even to its own values. Crazy because its own values have been chopped off from the root, so they don't work anymore. They don't work anymore. They only work when they're connected to what powers them. Values don't like just come out of thin air, right? We know this. Values are, they come from God. They're derived from the person and power of God. And when you cut them from that, they're not anything. So we can talk about freedom, but we don't see it in Galatians 5.1 fashion. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Number four, the primary social ethic is tolerance. Tolerance of everyone's self-defined quest for individual freedom and self-expression. And any deviation from this ethic of tolerance is dangerous and must not be tolerated. Therefore, social justice is less about economic or class inequality, which would be a good thing. Class inequality will not be a thing in the kingdom. Economic inequality will not be a thing in the kingdom. Those are good things to help the person next to us who is maybe of a different class or a different economic status than us. It's good to help them. That's, that's social justice gone right, done right. But this thing of tolerance makes social, social justice more about issues of equality relating to individual identity, self-expression, and personal autonomy. So, it doesn't matter how I express myself. It doesn't matter how I define myself. You need to accept it, and you need to be tolerant of it. So tolerance, and again, there's good and bad, right? There's a truth and a little error, sometimes a lot of error and a little truth, and it gets tricky. There's a, there's a portion of tolerance that could be defined in this area over here where we're kind to others, where we're, where we're um, respectful and gracious to others. 
in that sense, not be, being uh, not being intolerant. But tolerant, if it means accepting and claiming and naming that it's all the same, they're just different sides of the same coin. It's either, you know, it just doesn't really matter. You could have one or the other. That's not a tolerance that Christianity embraces. Number five, another another set of beliefs that's held in our culture is that humans are inherently good. Well, we know from Romans 3, and not just Romans 3.23, but Romans 3, 1 through 30 or 28 or however far it goes. Old chapter. People aren't good. No, (laughs) people are not inherently good. You look at the 20th century and the millions of people who died. And you look at today and the people that are being enslaved and trafficked and abused and on and on. People are not inherently good. And when they're cut up, when they're separated from God, even if they try to uh, embrace good values, it's not going to work. They'll, they'll be, they may be good for so long, but we're all inherently evil. That's why Jesus talks about Satan being the father of the culture. Number six, large-scale structures and institutions are suspicious at best and evil at worst. Understandable because they're all led by people who are not inherently good. So... Corporations, institutions, churches. That's why the the home church, the cell church, the small church has become more inviting for people because so many churches of, let's say, a hundred or more, make a large church a hundred or more people, they have things happen. There's struggles and there's issues and there's problems. The number seven, forms of external authority are rejected and personal authenticity is lauded. Well, what I pulled from that is this, the highest good is individual happiness and freedom, the ability to express who I am. But see where the culture has landed us now, where teachers are leaving schools because they're not supposed to tell the truth to the kids. Again, there's only one truth. How do you, especially little ones, how do you shepherd little sheep? How do you teach little hearts and little ears? And let's say little is 10 years old and under. When really you're supposed to allow them to decide and be whatever and whoever they want to be. Thankfully, from what I've gathered, and some of you may have gathered more than me and no no different, but it's a fraction of what's out there. It's not like every school, every student thinks they're this, that, or the other thing. But it has definitely crept in, right, to our society. And when the little ones start getting hurt like that, it makes us scratch our heads and wonder what we're doing as a church and how we can help as a church. So in this context, we see Jesus who says to his disciples, when the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth 
who goes out from the Father. This is like the origin. The Spirit comes out from the Father, the throne, God Almighty, Lord on high, His Spirit who comes out. He's the Spirit of truth. And Jesus said, I'm going to send Him to you. Don't worry, I'm leaving, but the Spirit is coming. And that Spirit indwells those of us in this room who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, who have aligned ourselves with Jesus Christ. God has given us His Spirit. He says, He will testify about me. He said in Matthew 28, go into all the world and make disciples, right? Make disciples. And now He's saying, the Holy Spirit, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will testify about me. But then He says, and you also must testify. You've been with me from the beginning. He's telling his disciples this. You're going to testify. You're going to be Acts 1-8. You're going to be my witnesses. When? And you will receive what? Power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my what? Testifiers, my witnesses. So we witness with the Spirit. The Spirit witnesses with us. It's something that we don't do alone. This great commission that God has given us, we're not doing it in our own power. We're not doing it by ourselves. In fact, Jesus said, it'll be better for you if I go. So let's move on in the last part of chapter, or verse 1 of chapter uh, 16. He says, all this I have told you, all this being chapters 13 and 14 and 15. Then he says, all this I have told you so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue, the religious people. You're going to be kicked out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they're offering a service to God. They'll do such things. Why? Real simple. They, they don't really know the Father. They don't know the Father. If you are living for Jesus and you are sharing your faith and people persecute you because of it and you come under suffering and struggle because of your walk with Jesus, it's because those people, they don't know the Father. They're not the enemy. The prince of darkness, the evil one, Satan, he's the enemy. The spiritual powers and the rulers of wickedness. They're the enemy. People aren't the enemy. The people, they just don't know the Father. And they don't know Jesus. They, don't, they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. Because it's going to happen and I want you to know. That's why at the top of the page I said that at the intersection of faith and truth, not truth with a small t, but our faith, our, our belief in Jesus Christ, our being a follower of Jesus, the intersection of that and truth, the truth that God gives us to share. If our main priority is to be witnesses, that means we're going to express our faith to others. We're going to live it out. We're going to be Jesus with skin on, but we're also going to use words and tell people about the love of Christ for them. And, and, and what God has for them, when those two things intersect, there's going to be suffering. 
and there's going to be persecution. And that's why Jesus is sending the advocate, the one who will advocate on our behalf, the comforter, the one who will bring us comfort, the empowerer, the gift giver, the counselor, the encourager. We don't go alone. The Holy Spirit of God indwells us. He empowers us to do these things that God is calling us to do. And Jesus' whole point here is, you guys are really nervous. You need to take a Xanax. And then once you take one of those, then you also have to remember that I'm giving you the Spirit. I'm giving you the Holy Spirit. You're not going to be alone. He's going to fill you. He's going to empower you. He's going to witness, and so are you. But you're not going to do it alone. Thank you. I hear that amen. Amen. It says, uh, going on in verse 4, I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me. None of you ask, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. See, this is, the, this is one of the focal points of this passage. To, to notice the state of the disciples here. All these words are going to these guys who are filled with grief. They're like, they're, they're this loss. They're, Jesus was a big personality in their midst. Whenever they couldn't do it, there was Jesus. He was going to take care of everything. And if he didn't take care of it, it means it didn't need to be taken care of. But he was going. He kept telling them, and they didn't want to hear it, but he would tell them again. They didn't want to hear it. Over and over, if you look through the Gospels, Jesus keeps telling them, I'm leaving, I'm leaving, I'm leaving, I'm leaving. And they're at the point now where they understand that he's leaving, and they're filled with grief. They don't know why, and they don't know what's coming. He says, I have said these, uh, with, I, you're filled with grief because I have said these things, but very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. The only two blanks on your handout, if you are a blank filler in her, is your good. It is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, if he gave them the choice now, like sometimes I hear parents giving their kids choices, and I don't mean 16-year-olds, I mean 3-year-olds, 6-year-olds, 8-year-olds. Well, now you can choose between this, and I know I sound like an old fuddy-duddy today, don't I? I sound like that to myself. I didn't give my kids that many choices. I, if, if I talk to my wife, she'll, she'll correct me. She has a much better memory. My memory tends to sanitize everything and put the, talk about the, the Dutch front on it. That's what my memory does. Um, if he gave the disciples the choice, they would have said, no, Jesus, stay. We'd rather have you stay. We know what we've got with you. You stay with us. I know you're talking about sending somebody else, but if you stay with us, we'll be happy. No, he says, no. I, unless I go away, he won't come. But if I go, I'll send him to you. The very thing they fear, Jesus has not only mitigated their aloneness, 
They're being forlorn and forsaken, but he has obliterated it by already working it out with the Father that he was going to send the Spirit. And the Spirit is more than going to make up for the loss of the physical in one place, Jesus. He says, when he comes, he'll prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin because people don't believe in me, which is the greatest sin to just reject Christ. About righteousness because I'm going to the Father, and when he goes to the Father, he's going he's to be our advocate at the Father's side. Uh, the King James, I've never learned it in the NIV, but ever living to make intercession for us. Jesus is at the right hand of God, pleading our case with the Father. And about uh, righteousness, because I'm going to the Father where you could see me no longer, and about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Satan is condemned. Satan is not going to win. He is defeated. And my death and resurrection will seal the deal with him. Jesus says, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Now I want you to see this next phrase, because this is so important when we think about we're in our culture, but we have to be so careful to not, like our culture, say, oh, my needs, my wants, my opinion, what I think. I'm the one who charts my course. I'm the one who defines my reality and my identity. The Holy Spirit will not speak on his own. He'll speak only what he hears. And he'll tell you what is yet to come. He will not speak on his own. You guys, if the Spirit of God cannot speak on his own, who are we? Who are we? to think we can speak on our own. We should be speaking only what God has told us. That's why when we have to figure out our identity, we find our identity in Christ. We find our identity here. But it's only what Jesus has already said. It's only what God has already told us. Even the Holy Spirit doesn't speak on his own. Jesus said, everything I say, everything I say is from the Father. Everything I do, I only do what the Father tells me to do. So we don't have a, a spirit-centered Christianity. We don't have a Christocentric Christianity. We have a theocentric faith. It's, there's a triune God. We're not just one. We're not just the Spirit or just Jesus or just the... We're the theocentric, God-centric faith, because the triune God is involved in us. And the, the other two persons of the Godhead yield to the authority and the will of the Father. Why that is, how that is, who knows? But it's what Jesus says, and it's what he's teaching us here. He will only speak what he hears, and he'll tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he'll make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. So see, there's from the Father to Jesus to the Spirit to us. And when we pray, we pray in the Spirit, in the name of through Jesus. Our entrance to God is through the Son. No one comes to the Father but through me. And then to the Father, there's this, there's this telephone chat, right? 
from us to the Spirit, to Jesus, to the Father, and on down through. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. Guys, I'm going to cut that video for this service. You guys are not going to get the video the first service, God. You'll have to search for it. Maybe I'll send it to you in an email. Um, On the back of your sheet, it says, while believers in Jesus will not escape suffering, we will have a comforter, the Holy Spirit, our helper. We will have one who will teach us. We will have one who will witness for Jesus alongside of us. We'll have one who is our attorney, our advocate, and our judge in this world. We'll have one who will guide us authentically in truth. If Jesus didn't go, we couldn't be united in the Spirit. If Jesus didn't go, the body of Christ wouldn't be empowered all around the world. But he did go, and he sent the Spirit. So as you guys go out today, you have the Holy Spirit. God with you. God with you. Walk in his power. Walk in step with the Spirit. Allow the Holy Spirit to work through you in the lives of others. Let's receive our truth from God. There is no truth in society. No no truth in society at all. Unless it's reflecting God's truth. But when it tries to leverage God's truth, its way, and doesn't work. That's <laughs> a stand-up cutout. There's nothing there. So let's get our truth from God, and let's get our power from His Spirit, and let's be witnesses for Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, thank You. Thank You for Your love for us. Thank You for the Word of God, for making it clear to us through Your Spirit. And Lord, as we look at this passage and we see that that that. Jesus is in submission to you, Father, and that the Spirit is in submission to you, not even speaking on his own. Lord, who are we but people who have to cry out like the the man in the Gospels, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, have mercy on us sinners. And I thank you that you have. I thank you that you have. God, help us to see the world system for what it is. Help us to see it as from Satan and from hell itself. But help us to see the people as precious in your sight, as image bearers of the eternal God, and of people worthy of love and respect and care courtesy, kindness. God, help us to be clay vessels that carry this treasure of the gospel to other broken people who are poor, destitute, and in need of you. And help us to know who the enemy is and then know the difference between them and the people that you say You desire to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. God, would you use us to reach others for Jesus? Would you use us to live out the gospel and to preach the gospel in words and in deeds and in care and in love? 
We worship you, almighty God. We praise your name. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.